Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 62 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, you got your co hosts, me, Mark Luino, Giraffe Neck Mark, here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range, talking about what's going on in Mets world after a hectic week where we got a new GM. We lost Noah Syndergaard. It's actually been pretty quiet on the New York Mets front. We got Aaron Loop. Aaron Loop's gone. He's also weirdly gone to the Angels. I mean, that's just a kind of interesting story. We're going to talk about Aaron Loop. We're going to talk about Seiya Suzuki, the Japanese prospect slugger that could be coming over to Major League Baseball as soon as this season. I believe he just got posted, and the Mets apparently are very interested. So we'll go over some Seiya Suzuki info and news for you guys as well. And then we're just going to kind of talk about the Mets roster, maybe a little bit about their offseason plan, because there's been some speculation about what the Mets should be doing or guys they should be going after. We're going to briefly talk about that today here on the Mets Up Podcast, episode number 62. If you guys are enjoying it, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Mets Up, YouTube channel if you want video content, at Mets Up, or it's not at Mets Up, it's just Mets Up Podcast on YouTube. You'll be able to find us there. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to us, you'll be able to get the Mets Up Podcast. Drop us a rating, drop us a review. It really does help us out. And that's my plug, James. How are we feeling today uh, after the loop signing and everything going on with the Mets? I'm feeling pretty okay. This is the by far the quietest week of the offseason so far. It took us all the way until Thanksgiving for everything with the Mets to finally simmer down after this insane season and ridiculously antiquated general manager search. But this is the first time that I feel like either of us could even just like catch our breath and think about things that aren't like pressing down on us. Well, this was like the first episode that we kind of actually had to think about what we were going to talk about because... We have to kind of make stuff up now. Not that we're making it up, but there isn't a whole lot of actual legitimate news to talk about with the Mets, which is good and bad. Good side, we're not doing anything particularly newsworthy that's bad, where we're not, you know, getting bad press. But on the bad side, we haven't made a single signing yet. And a lot of teams haven't made moves yet this offseason, but I feel like a lot of people with the Mets, especially after what just happened yesterday or last night, people are starting to get worried I don't know. It's hard for me to get worried when you don't sign a left-handed reliever. I'm kind of shocked by the outpouring of like anxiety that's come from Mets fans, especially on social media, about not re-signing Aaron Loop. Like people are telling, like people jumped in my mentions yesterday. People almost never jump in my mentions. I don't have that many followers. Like, what are we doing? Like, how could this go wrong? Like, why aren't we making any moves here? I'm like, this guy, Aaron Loop has like objectively had two good years in his entire Major League Baseball career. He's in his mid 30s. He throws 90 miles an hour on a good day. Like, I don't understand why not signing. I a left-handed reliever is a big deal. And, like, with that being said, Aaron Loop was great, and he was a ton of fun. But I, I just I can't even imagine this being the thing that sends me over the edge. Yeah, like, Loop is a folk legend, I think, in Mets land, 100%. He's Loop, there it is. He had the, the bush lights after the game. Like, he was a character, despite having pretty much, like, no personality. He was a character. I don't know how to really say that outside of, like, he's not 
It's not anybody you would recognize on the street, but everybody knows the name. I don't even think I would recognize Aaron Loop on the street. <laughs> he would be ha- he would have to have like that bandana on and also be drinking a bush light, and I'd be like, is that Aaron Loop? Is is that our left hand reliever? I just I can't lose sleep over it. Like you said, I had people jump in my mentions too. I talked about like how I was happy for him. They're like, oh, cry about, it. and I'm like, listen. I really do wish the best for Aaron Loop. He just got paid $17 million, a number that he probably thought he was never going to hit in his career as a left-handed reliever, a loogie really at this point. And he just got paid. I'm not going to lose any sleep over, what is it, seven and a half, eight and a half million dollars a year to Aaron Loop going to the Angels. If anything, I I don't think I would have agreed to that contract for Aaron Loop despite how good he was. No, there's absolutely no reason to do that. And I guess now we're going to get into our loop talks. We made these notes yesterday before the loop signing happened, so we figured we'd break down his potential free agency rather than um, pontificate on the signing that has happened. But there's just no real possible way that I could ever see Aaron Loop repeating this. Maybe like to a certain extent, like maybe next year his ERA will be in like the high ones or mid twos if everything once again goes perfectly. But it's really just so 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 unlikely. Like just to put Aaron Loop's 2021 season in perspective eight pitchers since the year 2000 have had an era under one while throwing at least 55 innings and this was done by a lot of very different types of pitchers you have one tier of pitchers it was blake trinian in 2018 and one of the greatest relief full seasons we've ever seen ever the guy's an absolute absolute witch another was wade davis in 2015 during those wade davis years that will just go down in baseball lore he wade davis is a guy who like should go to the hall of fame because for the three years in a row he didn't give up any runs did he give up any runs and then the man got paid he got the highest contract at the time that a reliever ever got and this is like i'm gonna let you finish your thing but i'll talk about wade davis a little bit more in a bit all right and the next guy in this tier is jonathan papelbon who in 2006 with the red Sox was just literally unhittable just no, no one even touched him. And then Zach Britton during his very famous 2016 season with the Orioles. All of those guys are, or even were at this time, elite closers with high velocity, top-end fastballs, and at least one off-speed pitch that would make hitters just shit their pants. Some of these pitchers even too. I believe Davis had the changeup and a slider. I, I think it was more of a cutter. cutter yeah. I think he was like a little bit of a cutter guy. I mean, Wade Davis was, like you said, unhittable for like a three weird three-year yeah. stretch. And like, so was Papelbon. People like shit on Papelbon because he had that ridiculous stint with uh, the Nationals and like a weird end of his career that was pretty disappointing. But from like 2005, 2010, there was nobody... You want to see less on the mound in the ninth inning than crazy Jonathan Papelbon. So I was actually recording a video about Baseball Hall of Fame ballot yesterday for my channel, and I was going through all the guys on the list, and I was going over the newcomers and Papelbons on the ballot, and I forgot how good he was. Like, he was pretty disgusting for about 10 years, but he only really played like 11 or 12, so I think that's why people forget he didn't have this like 18-year career, but when he pitched... He never was really bad. Like, never. No, never. And then Papelbon's the kind of guy who, there's probably a chance he could have done like this Kimbrel thing where he was amazing, got bad, but then actually got himself to a real organization who knew how to fix him or even just like maybe spent an extra year getting healthy because he had some injuries towards the back end. But that was a different time in baseball, like the early 2010s, so there wasn't as much advanced strategy evolved but point being made those four guys are in their own tiers of pitchers who threw at least 55 innings when era under one in a full season and aaron loop is not like them and then i have a second tier it's a one-player tier it's only fernando rodney <laughs> i don't i I can't describe what fernando rodney's done in his career but in 2012 with the rays he had an era of 0.6 
So, <laughs> Fernando Rodney existed. That's basically his major league career. Like, what are you going to do? Fernando Rodney, one year, just everything came together. The hat was at the perfect angle for an entire season <laughs> long, and that was it. It happened. So, Fernando Rodney is his own second tier on this list. Then we have the third tier of these pitchers, and these are lefties who throw 90 miles an hour or less who did this for one year, and I don't know if they're ever going to do it again because two of the three haven't. And it's Eric O'Flaherty in 2011, Chris Hammond, in 2002, shockingly, both of those guys did it with the Atlanta Braves, which is just a weird coincidence, and then Aaron Loop this year. And also surprisingly, all three of those guys had the ERAs incredibly close to one. O'Flaherty was 0.98, Chris Hammond was 0.95, Aaron Loop 0.95, Wade Davis had 9.4, and Pal Bond had 9.2, but those other guys were in the 5, 6, and 7s. And these three guys, like I said, no, not as much velocity, not really the devastating, hard-breaking off-speed pitch. They all had kind of this, a soft-break off-speed pitch. Like, we know Loop's colored. I'll get to the other two guys in a second. Loop actually led this entire brigade with a 26% strikeout rate. Those other guys were around 22%, 20%, at least 7% walk rates among all these guys. And, and I feel like with that K rate, too, because of the, like, ev- strikeouts have just gone up in baseball as well. So, like, that K rate probably for the time is pretty similar to what you would find Aaron Loops at right now if you were to, like, adjust. Yeah, definitely. Even this Fernando Rodney strikeout rate, when he had 0.6 ERA in 2012, was only 27%, like, within one percentage point of Aaron Loop. And then another big thing to note about all these guys is that all of them were just drastically outrunning the ERA estimators. Even the elite guys had FIPS in the high ones, low twos. And these three guys are Flaherty, Hammond, and Loop. The lowest FIP out of all of them was 2.5 by O'Flaherty. But it just kind of goes to show that this exact particular type of skill set isn't really that translatable over a multi-year window. If you're looking to be one of the best relievers in baseball. And Aaron Loop now is going to be paid like one of the best middle relievers in baseball. Bullpen is a fickle beast. We've said it on the, you know, the podcast before. It is so volatile what can happen on a year-to-year basis for a bullpen in general and specifically one player in the bullpen especially a guy like Loop who doesn't have that just elite stuff. And if you guys remember, I mean, Loop had a pretty good 2020, but he was still kind of a little bit on the outskirts. He had some rough years in Philly and Toronto where he was just not not wanted. He was not very good. And then the Mets got him and the Rays got him, and they were able to elevate his game. That is very easy to find again, like, for the Mets. This isn't someone that you can't replace because it's not like he's throwing 99. He's not Josh Hader. He's not one of those guys. He's not a Roldis Chapman throwing 101 miles an hour. So you can find a guy like Loop on the market again and try and, you know, kind of mold him into what you had last year and not spend $17 million. And I, I don't know. I, I really don't mind this one. I'm happy for Aaron Loop. I hope the best for him. But I cannot, I can't kill the Mets for missing out on this. No, definitely. And to kind of play on what you just said, the Mets signed Aaron Loop for one year and $3 million last offseason. Like, should one year of production really change your value estimation of him by that much? If last year he was only worth one year, $3 million, why is this year he's worth two years, $8.5 million per? That's over, That's almost a 200% increase in Aaron Loop's value based on what you're paying him for just like 50 games of production. And then I want to compare him to these two guys, O'Flaherty and Hammond, for just a moment because you can really find some striking similarities between their profiles. O'Flaherty, kind of more specifically, because he had a few years of being super fine between 2009 and 2012. Like, he was a good lefty reliever, especially this was when the Lugie was really probably at his most popular stage in the late 2000s, like right around 2010, when we were trying to start strategizing more in baseball and we're becoming much more aware of how splits worked and that these lefty sidearm guys were just able to get lefties out pretty easily. O'Flaherty was a Met, too, at one point, wasn't he? Oh, I think he ended his career with the Mets, yes. 
But he had this okay run in the 2000s. He went absolutely ballistically insane in 2011, like I mentioned. And then 2013, 2015, he was okay, but he ended up getting hurt, and he wasn't really able to recapture that glory. And that 2011 year, like I mentioned, 0.98 ERA. He had a career-best 22.3 strikeout rate. But with that, he also had an absolutely ridiculous strand rate of 92.3%. That means that 92.3% of the base runners that ever either were on base when O'Flaherty came to the mound or reached base while he was on the mound were left on base. That's much higher than league average. Right now, your strand rate will run kind of in the high 70s. So seeing something in the 90s is pretty unbelievable. And even more shocking with O'Flaherty for any pitcher in general. This was definitely a different offensive environment in 2011, but he only gave up a 3.9 home run per, for fly ball percentage. Basically, 3.9% of the balls ever hit in the air in 2011 against Eric O'Flaherty left the yard. That's way, way, way lower in league average. You'll see that hovering around 10-12% generally. And also similar to Loop, he was like the same kind of rangy, side-arming lefty. He had a whatever fastball it sat, high 80s, low 90s with a big sweeping slider. And again, the year after this, he still had an ERA under two, but he completely went off the rails afterwards. And so that's like saying that Aaron Loop could make this contract worth it for the Angels. It's possible that Aaron Loop next season is a dominant reliever, LOL Mets. They really fucked it up. But just process-wise, like it's not really worth it to give him a contract. That's why I want to talk about my guy Chris Hammonds for a second. Yeah. Another similar big lefty guy. His super season came literally out of nowhere. So kind of, I would say, somewhere in between Loop having a few sparse good seasons and O'Flaherty being a consistently okay reliever for a collection of years. He actually was converted from a starter to a reliever in 1995 for, like I think it was the expansion Marlins, I want to say. He just bounced around the NL East a lot. He struggled a lot in 96 and 97 as he was transitioning to a bullpen role. He was injured in 1998 and didn't pitch again until the 2002 season, the year that he went ballistic. So there was kind of a combination of him changing his own uh, game play style to fit his new role and the baseball just simply not seeing him for three full years that kind of helped him sneak up on everybody and 2002 was the last year of Hammond's career where advanced stats uh, were being recorded so you can't I couldn't really track um, any changes to his pitch mix or any adjustments to any of his like rate stats like against home run fly ball stuff but similar to O'Flaherty but not as drastic he had the highest strand rate of his career in 2002 at 83.7% and this was all being done while his FIP and Sierra were hanging out in the high twos and the low threes. And also very similar to O'Flaherty, he had a 1.5 home run per five ball percentage. That's like a delusional number, something I've That's almost crazy. never, ever seen in my entire life. And he just barely had 20% strikeout rate, 20.3%. And his pitch mix was actually something I would just expect of one of these big left-handed starters in the early 2000s. He threw 50% fastballs at 86 miles an hour, <laughs> which... I'm hope that was a sinker. I'm just assuming so. Oh. And then 14% curves, 27% changeups, and 9% sliders. So like, there's literally no reason at all for him to be anything special in that particular season. And he was nothing special ever again. He completely created after this one shockingly amazing season. Yeah. So like, I just I can't I can't get upset about this loop. And like, would we have liked Loop back on the Mets? I think we both agree. Yes, for the right price, we were very much we wanted him back. He was very good, and it's, there's no signs they're showing. He's going to stink again, by all means. But is he worth that seven and a half? His contract's actually seven and a half with some bonuses, I believe they said. But is he really worth that seven and a half million? I mean, I'm looking at the top paid relievers in baseball right now. He's 15th in Major League Baseball. I mean, there's some guys around him where you go, just doesn't really make sense to pay him that much. You look at, guys get paid for stuff, it feels like, relievers a lot of time. And the guys that are all getting paid this big money have the stuff. 
And then there's Aaron Loop and Scott Oberg. And the fact that Scott Oberg's in the same conversation as guys getting paid $7 million just shows you how inept the Colorado Rockies are. But I, I can't swallow that pill. I can't swallow that pill of paying him that much. And I really don't think the Mets deserve getting shit on for this one. No, but if I could play devil's advocate for a second here, Eno Saris, who I've talked about a lot in this podcast, he I think is the best baseball writer that exists right now. Him and Max Bay early in the season developed a metric called Stuff Plus. They take every single pitch and they rate them all. So you kind of create like a single like stat number that is a complete like envelopment of every pitcher's movement of all their pitches and how effective they are. And Aaron Loop actually has the best Stuff Plus number of all available relievers in this, this past season. Better than Kenley Jansen, better than Rafael Iglesias. So like that is the counterpoint here that maybe something did click with loop with the Mets especially even that last season with the Rays that could have adjusted that and he did have slightly different movement profiles on all of his pitches like Aaron Loop had more horizontal movement on every single pitch this year compared to any year of his career that Jeremy really did happen effect. yeah starting in 2019 he started throwing his new cutter at least 30% of the time he's on that three years running now these have been three of the best years of his career not the three best but three of the best so there is a possibility that Aaron Loop can continue to be very good and if kind of if you look at his full career profile the most similar season he had to this past year was 2017, that year with the Blue Jays that you kind of rode off. He was near the top of the league in barrel rate allowed. All of his expected stats were very, very low. He gave up absolutely no hard contact compared relatively to the rest of his career. So there was a blueprint here before that people did get to the bottom of and things were solved and he could still be good. But similar to those other two big lefties I mentioned, O'Flaherty and Hammond, Aaron Loop was just running through some incredible luck this year that really helped him to capture this wild season we mentioned it most podcasts during the season like this is gonna run out like there's no way this continues and Aaron Loop his strand rate was at 86.3% like well above league average and way better than the rest of his career as he sat in the 70s and he had a ridiculous home run for fly ball rate at 2.7% well as he sat between 9 and 11 percent his entire career so I just I can't see both of those stats happening to that extent again maybe one or maybe the other and that'll keep his ERA in the twos or the high ones, and that will probably objectively make this contract worth it for an Angels team that has never had a good bullpen, at least not in our lifetimes. But I just, I really can't see, like, the crux of an offseason plan being centered around this Aaron Loop deal and, like, jumping out of a plane because of it. Yeah, no, like, I I think it's a good pickup for the Angels because, like you said, their bullpen's so bad, and he'll definitely be useful out there. He'll definitely get some innings, and he's going to have a good year. Like, I, I don't have a doubt he'll have a good year by all means. I think I just also believe, and I think you too, Believe in the fact that the Mets can find someone with a similar profile if you're really looking for that type of pitcher and try and make him into that next version of him as well, and it won't cost you seven and a half million dollars over two or for the next two years. I mean, even some of the guys that they're talking about right now that the Mets are interested in, one of the names that's flying around is Taylor Rogers from the Minnesota Twins. He's a guy who's due like six million dollars, I think, this upcoming year, who's been really good in Minnesota before. Another Jeremy Hefner guy. I mean, I would take him too if we're really going to talk about money. Like if you would have came into last year even and said Looper Rogers, you would have probably picked Taylor Rogers a hundred out of a hundred times. So I don't know. I it, it just comes back to the idea that there is pitching out there, there is left-handed pitching out there that's available, and you won't have to spend a premium, which sounds weird at seven and a half million dollars. But yeah, this is not the downfall of the Mets offseason by any means. Like it's been signaled on Twitter by some people. No, definitely not. I'd probably even rather take Taylor Rogers to Aaron Loop right now. As crazy as that might sound to some people, like he just has a higher ceiling. He just throws harder and he has a better slider. Like there's not really any way to slice that up. There's so many relievers you can sign for five million dollars or less this offseason. You could turn into a project and it could be a lot of fun. Like I think of a guy like Jacob Junis 
from the Kansas City Royals, who's always had like pretty, um, I'd say, enticing stuff his entire career, but he plays for an organization that does not yet own a computer. So I think not a lefty a, though. I think people want lefties. Okay, well I know people want lefties, but who I, I I don't know. Does that really matter with the three batter rule now? I think it does weirdly in the NL East because just because Freeman Soto, Freeman Soto, Harper, those yeah. are three big left-handed bats that you're gonna you have to get out. I mean, think about how many times we saw those guys come up in big moments this that's, season. That part, that's true. That's definitely where it has value. But if you are looking for that guy who can get those left-handed guys out, there are dudes available. Brooks Raley was untouchable by left-handed hitters last oh yeah year. untouchable he can't get a righty out for his life but against lefties untouchable so like there, there's definitely guys available that you could go get Andrew Chafin's a great option too Andrew yes. Chafin by all uh, intents and purposes is a better pitcher than Aaron Loop and yes. he's probably going to cost basically the exact same amount of money like I would struggle to give to jump the mark and give Aaron Loop that contract and I can give the same one to Andrew Chafin who's been better for longer with better stuff. He get, he gets both sides of the plate out extremely yeah. well. He limits hard contact. He does everything you want just like Loop did. There's there's no reason for this to be sounding the alarm. Like, okay, we missed Loop and Syndergaard this offseason, two guys that we we probably thought we were going to have back, but they were by no means the the crux of the success of this team going into 2021. No, definitely not. And if they were, That'd be a pretty big disaster. Yeah, we we would really be in trouble. Like, we don't think that this Mets team is in particularly great spot no. right now, but they are not in, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But they're not in the doomsday scenario right now because of this. No, it wasn't like that that visual meme, if if you will, where um there's this major stack of stuff that's, like, keeping this boat from, like, crashing into the shore, and the boat is the Mets 2022 season, and there's this tiny little peg that, like, theoretically Mets fans think was Aaron Loop. And you pull that peg away, and apparently the whole thing explodes. I don't, just don't think that's true. No. I think Aaron Loop more so was a folk hero. He was a lot of fun, and he had an incredible season. He probably did a lot this year to hold the Mets where they were for a very extended period of time. But I just don't think that it was an $8.5 million gamble to take. No. And honestly, I've been talking about this a lot. You know, the Syndergaard money, where that could go. The Loop money, where that could go. I want to talk about Seiya Suzuki, because that's a guy who I would love to give some money to, and especially from what the estimators are coming out for what his contract could look like, it's not very expensive. It's, it, I think it's worth the risk. Say Suzuki, if you guys don't know, is this the Japanese Mike Trout, I believe, is his nickname uh, right now. That's a little hyperbole. Obviously, he's not going to come over and be Mike Trout. It's just it's very hard to be like that. He's Mike Trout there. He's No, that's what I'm saying. He's Mike Trout yeah. there. I think when people hear Japanese Trout, they're thinking like almost like he's going to be Otani-level type stuff. That's going to be really hard in his first year. I don't know if he'll ever hit those ceilings. But there is some really good stuff that he does in Japan. He's a ball player. He's very, very good. And he's different than we've seen for a lot of Japanese prospects or even foreign prospects coming over because he's only 27. Yeah, and I, he actually has some better hitting numbers at similar ages and years as Otani in the MPB. Well, yeah, and I mean, he also is only hitting. Yeah, he doesn't pitch. I know. That's a big that's a big part of it, true. But, like, I just think that there's a lot of people in general in American baseball media who are a little bit scared off by the idea of Japanese players because we've seen so many completely fall apart. Uh, Shogo Akiyama. Well, there's in recent years, but I don't even want to go further back right now. Like, uh, Don't Shin- do it to me. Shinjo. Oh, don't, I love Shinjo. I got a Shinjo autograph at home. We got Shinjo. We got... <laughs> Kazmatsui. <laughs> what, was the, what was the Cubs guy? Kisuke Fukudome? Kasuke Fukudome. You got uh, Tadahito Aguchi. You got yeah. Kenji Jojima. I could just rattle off some Japanese players that have come over and really had no impact. A lot of them have. Yeah, a lot of them had. And, of, of course, you have Ichiro. That's the, the top end of it, The what you're hoping you hit with when you get a guy. But say Suzuki, 
I did a video last year during the uh, you know lockout of baseball when we had nothing going on about the top players in the MPB for every team, and I looked into the Say Suzuki guy. I'm like, oh boy, this guy can hit. He can play. He's really good. People are going to be scared because we just had uh, Yoshi Sestugo and Shogi Akiyama, Shogo Akiyama come by, and they were these types of prolific power contact guys from Japan who completely fell on their faces. But there's almost no similarities between these types of players. And like you said, Suzuki's posting in, in what we consider a prime at 27 years old, even though your physical prime is probably like 24 to like 28, so 27, but like I'll take him into his 30s. I don't really care. And he's just, he can really rip the snot out of the ball. And he's also a bodybuilder. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but I saw the size of the guy, and I know he's 5'11", but he's he's a strong 5'11". Oh, he's an ox. Yes. But bottom line, he's had a top five WRC plus each of the last six seasons, all of his professional years in the MPB. He's been a full-on MVP this season. He leads in literally every single advanced metric in uh, NPB, like WRC+, OPS+, WOBA, ISO, ISO+, WRAA, which I don't even know what that is. I have no clue. I don't know. It's in the Prospects Live article, so sure. And batting average for all the uh, all the real listeners at home here. And war. So he's leading in everything. He's third in home runs. And he had the same amount of strikeouts and walks, which, I mean, you know that that just sends me to the moon. Yeah, that gives you a little bit of a hard-on right there yeah. hearing that. <laughs> 100%. But he actually went through his own like play discipline renaissance this season. Traditionally, the last couple of years, he's had more walks and strikeouts, which if the other one gave me a hard-on, this is just going to send me out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> but he kind of went through this um, adjustment midseason where he gave up some play discipline and some of his patience for more power. And even by doing that, he's evened out his strikeouts and walks, and he has just absolutely annihilated the ball. Power... And hit tool are not in question at all here. He's probably like a 60-grade hit tool. I just can't give him a 70, probably even a 50, just because I'm scared about the Japanese guys with velocity. And it's probably like a 60-grade raw power, truthfully. And he's an incredible athlete. He's really fast. Gross. He's, he's got a great arm. It seems like he, he can play the outfield very well. It doesn't oh. seem like that's going to be a problem by any means. Four cold gloves in five years. Yeah, so this guy is a about the most all-around player that we've seen in quite some time come from Japan, and he really is probably the best player in that league that's Japanese. And I did something that I know that you really love, oh, but yeah. this guy's swing is sexual. I love it. I love it. It's honestly just... one of the best swings I've ever seen. He doesn't have that, like, stereotypical Japanese swing where, like, they're, like, running out of the box and, like, kind of just trying to slap it around. He gets in there. He takes some friggin' hacks. He's also, like, so quick to the ball. Like, he's, like, completely fluid. Like, there's absolutely no extraneous movement whatsoever when he comes to the ball. And that makes me think that while there will always be an adjustment period when these Japanese players face elite major league velocity because there's, like, no one who throws over 92 miles an hour in Japan. No. But the way he swings and the way he sees breaking pitches makes me think that he will be able to actually adjust probably more quickly than we'd even expect yeah his swing is very compact and it's, it's hard to tell bat speed on video but his bat speed looks very good as well I wouldn't say it's like elite but it doesn't I'm not watching and I'm not seeing Michael Toglia who's got the slowest bat I've ever seen sorry Michael <laughs> Michael Tolia but, Michael Tolia yeah but I mean like he he looks like a baseball player his stats tell you he's very very good all the like peripherals and all the or not the intangibles all the like uh you know the power the speed the the hit tool, all that, they all grade well. If you're the Mets, it seems like a guy that you should be very, very much in on. And he, well, first of all, I do have a pretty cool video I found on Twitter of a side shot, slow motion of his swing that we should, we're either going to post on our own Twitter channel or we could put this into the video if you could do that. I don't even I'll do both. All right, beautiful. I'll send it to you after this. But 
he loves to work the count. Loves to work the count. I've Love read that. tons of scouts say that he will consistently put himself down 0-2 because he's been more aggressive. And he's very good at getting it back to 3-2 or at least getting himself back into a count where he sees a pitch to hit. The highest, I don't know if this stat means anything, but I saw an article I thought was kind of cool. Out of all of the counts that he drew walks in, so 3-2, 3-1, or 3-0, the only counts you can draw a walk from, by far the highest rate of his walks came from a 3-2 count. And that, that tells you that, like, He's not lo- he's not looking for a walk, but he also will take them. He will take them if given. But like the three zero and three one, if he's getting a pitch, he's aggressive. And like I, I kind of like that. I want a guy who's going to jump on those pitches that are supposed to be the ones that you take advantage of. The Mets did not do that last year. We complained about it, how bad we were at hitting mistakes. He's going to jump on you if you make a mistake. Definitely. And just to bring it back to the last two premier Japanese players who posted Yoshi Tatugo and Shogo Akiyama. Those guys were both stars in Japan in their own right. They were both high-average, high-power guys. Stugo having a little bit more power, and Akiyama having a little bit higher average. But even Akiyama, who swings an absolute pool noodle, as I you like to say. I said that years ago. I want to be right. <laughs> and, he had, and he had 20 home runs his last season in Japan. But just to compare these guys, in all of their last in the last year they all played in Japan, when uh, Suzuki was 24 and the other two guys were 27 and 28, Suzuki was by far better than them. Suzuki that year had 335, 453, 565 slash. That's disgusting. Tostugo had a 272, 388, 511. So by far worse, every single category there. Nakayama had a 303, 392, 471. Also by far worse across the board. Suzuki had a 176 WRC plus. Tostugo had a 136. Akiyama had a 141. Suzuki had a 445 Woba. Tostugo had a 391. Akiyama had a 390. And this is the one part that was more similar. Suzuki had 28 home runs. Tostugo had 29. Akiyama had 20. But Suzuki has adjusted to give himself more power since then. And even if you really want to get in the weeds here, like really, really want to get in the weeds, because we do, because we want them to sign this guy. I think he's a, could possibly be a, a legitimate stud. That year in 2019, Tostugo had a 22% chase rate, Akiyama a 25% chase rate, Suzuki had a 17% chase rate. It's pretty gross. Pretty gross. As far as swing strike rate goes, Tostugo had a 9.8, Akiyama had an 8.2, Suzuki had a 6.6. Even if you compare those plate discipline stats to the second half of this season, when you can see a hard line in Suzuki's style changing, he had a 20% chase rate and a 7.4% swing strike rate. So even still, in his most aggressive time, with more power, more talent, more athleticism, and just more vigor than these other two guys who came over with critical acclaim, signed by two of the smarter organizations in baseball, Suzuki is still better literally across the board. There's not one stat you can find that they beat him in. And we got Billy Epler now. Billy Epler's got that Japanese connection. I talked about it in the last episode. I said, hey, maybe you'll help us with... I did. What's the Japanese connection? The Japanese... He signed Otani, and no one thought the Angels were going to get Otani at the time. He wasn't really rumored to them. It was it was all Mariners, and that's probably the Ichiro effect a little bit. But listen, he got Otani to the Angels. No one was really expecting that. Let's get Seiya Suzuki to the Mets. I want this guy on there. We need a corner outfielder right now because Conforto's on his way out. Let's, let's give the shot to Seiya Suzuki. He's not going to cost really anything either, it seems like. He also could probably play center field based on all of the scouting reports. I don't know if you'd want him to, but... Yeah, I was about to say, I'm not so sold on him being a center fielder as much as like some of the other people, but I, that's weird to say because he's a good athlete and has a good arm, but it, it, it is a little different. I don't know. His arm's almost too good for center. Like I kind of yeah. want that in a corner so we could really let, let fly. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. A lot of you listeners and viewers out there were pretty critical of us for the last episode because we did give Billy Epler a lot of flack. But I guess this was his claim to fame as Shohei Otani. If you want, yeah. if you have to say something, I guess that is a pretty positive that he signed, who looks like one of the best players in baseball. I mean, like, and the flack we gave him 
was all warranted. Again, we don't dislike the guy. We don't hate him. We don't hope he does poorly because we're Mets fans. Our podcast does better with the Mets do well. We want to see the Mets succeed. We're just telling you facts. There were struggles with Epler in Los Angeles with the Angels. They did not perform. These are all things that are truthful statements. Nothing we were saying was really opinion-based there. It was all truthful. Yeah, we were just pointing out the players that were on these rosters and that there was a lot of general managers in baseball probably would not have done similar things, especially given the climate of modern baseball and what we know about most of those players that Billy Epler either gave small money, medium money, or big money to. Again, as we pointed out last episode, I want to be the dead horse here. I'd like Billy Epler to earn our trust based on his own merit rather than the merit of people in our YouTube comments. And that's what I want. He's got, he's got to earn our trust. We've, we've thrown around trust a little bit too much as a New York Met fan. I'm, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. I don't trust him. He's got to earn it from me. Prove to me that you know what you're doing. Prove that you're competent. You know what you could do by doing that? Go get a guy like Seiya Suzuki. That's who we want. My finger's not really been on the pulse of Seiya Suzuki. This seems to be a big YouTube thing. All you YouTubers seem to just be in love with Seiya Suzuki. Of course. How much is he going to get and how much would you give him? I don't think I can see it because I think I'm blocked. Well, I don't think I'm blocked. I am blocked by John Heyman and I think he was tweeting about it. But I think the estimate is around like 10 to $17 million a year for Seiya Suzuki, which that's it. And he's like looking for five years. So, I mean, five for like... 50 5 for 50 seems low but like 5 for 60 5 for 65 sure I'll take that risk that's not really a lot for the kind of player that he's been in Japan I think 5 years he's gonna get a commitment I think that's what he's looking for uh huh that's a lot of years. Three to five, you gotta think yeah. is gonna end up being the range you're not really gonna sign a Japanese player for anything lower than like two and that's for a guy who's the best player in the league <laughs> yeah that's true how do you think he compares to Michael Conforto right now, based on what he's going to get in free agency and who you expect to produce more over the next five years. So it's really hard to say because we don't we don't know what Suzuki's going to do here. All the things tell us he should be a very competent player, but we do know what Michael Conforto's floor is, and we saw it last year. That's probably going to be the worst year he really has, and even then he was basically league average, right? Am I, am I correct yeah, in the, saying the that? the OPS plus got to like 103. Okay, so he was basically league average, and that's probably the worst season you're going to see with Michael Conforto. The thing is, you're not signing Michael Conforto to five years. It's not happening. He's probably taking the one-year contract unless you're going to pay him that 20 million dollars a year. I don't see Boris taking anything less than five for 100 And even then, I, I, I just don't see that happening. So it's, do you take the risk on Conforto and give him the one-year, you know, 20-something million this year, and he signs, and then he gets he leaves, and he gets more money because he played well again? I, I, I don't know if you can really do that. I don't know if that's an actual possibility. To me... I'm all for bringing in the young guy from Japan and giving him the risk. If it's going to be $60 million to him uh, for five years, whatever it's going to be, I- I'm cool with giving him that risk as opposed to Conforto for three. Yeah, I can see that too. I just, the, the, the not having a real idea of what the floor is of Suzuki is scary. We, that's, we, what, that's that point I was about to make. We really don't know how bad it could be. There's no way to prove it. There's no way to f- even slightly figure it out. Like I know the worst-case scenario next year, Michael Conforto is going to have a 10% walk rate. He's going to play average defense and probably find his way into minimum 25 home runs. He'll be, at worst, a two-and-a-half win player, like yeah. similar to this past season. Suzuki, just like any player who's never seen a pitch above 98 miles an hour before, he could just not be able to adjust. It took Shoki Akiyama will probably never be good, and yeah. Yoshi Tsutugo finally started to get a little bit of a taste at the end of last season, even though... Akiyama is frail, and he. <laughs> the Shoko Akiyama spring training 2020 story is the, one of the best stories in the history of Major League Baseball. 
he was so committed to working hard to like earn his keep in America and find his footing that he spent four consecutive months at the Red Spring Training Facility during the entire lockout in Florida, away from his wife, who just moved across the globe to live in Cincinnati with him. Yeah, I respect the grind. I mean, he should have done the Randy Rosarena thing when there was a lockout going on. He had chicken to hit the chicken and rice hard, which like... Suzuki doesn't need the chicken and rice. He's built. He's built. He doesn't need the chicken and rice. He's got the chicken and rice already. Shogo Akiyama desperately needs the chicken and rice because having seen him in person hitting on the field, I think I could throw a baseball farther than he could hit it, and I can't throw. So, I mean, Suzuki doesn't project like that. He doesn't look like that. His swing does—nothing gives me the signs that he's going to be Shogo Akiyama. Definitely. And he has the shorter swing than Tostugo. Something that, because we actually argued about who was going to be better when we lived together in 2020 between Akiyama and Tostugo. And Chalker, we were both wrong. Both wrong. They both stick. Because you were like, Tostugo's going to be the guy. And I was like, I really think Akiyama could be a real, like, useful player. Tostugo can't catch up to anything, and Akiyama can't hit the ball out of the infield. But Tostugo does have that very long swing that is kind of reminiscent of power hitters in Japan. It takes guys a couple of years to get that together. And, like, when I see Suzuki, I kind of see something similar to the way Hideki Matsui swung where the bat goes from right here to right here, just straight through. And we're not hitting coaches. We're not biomechanics experts. We don't really know exactly that a swing is going to translate. I can see a swing of my eyes and be like, I like that. That looks good. And I could very well be wrong. There's no real telling that Suzuki's ever going to come here and hit. I just think he will. Okay, so let me. this is how we're going to end this Seiya Suzuki talk here because we have been going for quite a bit. If he's like Hideki Matsui, do you take him over Conforto? If he's like Hideki Matsui, who's a super athlete, then yeah. Okay. If he's his own athletic body in the corner outfield and he's a Deki Matsui at the plate. That's what I mean, at the plate. Obviously, Matsui was a DH, but. Yeah, he couldn't even move. No, that man was 100 years old when he came here. <laughs> but if he hits like Hideki, is that something that you take over Conforto or are you still going like Conforto? I think Conforto could be better. That was a long pause. I might keep that That in. was a long pause. I'm thinking because I think that what Matsui did year in and year out was actually pretty similar to like Michael Conforto's like 40th percent, uh, like percentile expectation. Matsui was like a 260 hitter with like high 20s, low 30s home runs. And I don't know anything about Hideki Matsui's plate discipline. I'm going to look this up right that, now. That's actually a very good point. I have no clue if he walked or not. He may I have am, never I, walked in his life. I don't know. I literally don't know. <laughs> Godzilla, he was a legend, but I couldn't tell you his on-base percentage for the life of me. He was a legend. He was uglier than Sin. <laughs> um, pretty good play discipline. Matsui, during his heyday, was walking and striking out basically the same amount. But he had the uh, 2007, he played 143 games, 630 PAs. He had the exact same number of walks and strikeouts with 25 homers, 100 runs, 100 rubies. That's really okay, good. Yeah. I would think Hideki Matsui had a pretty good run. He had a couple of years where he was like very injured, but that's because he was eighty-five. So yeah, yeah, he was. He apparently came also came over twenty-nine, which is pretty similar in age, more similar actually to Stugo and Akiyama. But he just was so bad in the outfield. I wouldn't. I would never take that. Yes, like of it course. was. It was really bringing down his value. But as, as a bat, I mean, Hideki Matsui was a real driving force for those really talented Yankee teams in the early two thousands. I would take Hideki Matsui's bat and say Suzuki's arm and athleticism probably over Michael Conforto. Truly. Yeah, I think that's where I stand, too. I also just have it in my head that Conforto, there's no shot he comes back. So I, it just feels like there's no actual possibility that he will be back on the Mets this year. And then let's talk about, as we start to wrap it up here, let's talk about the 40-man action because we did have some things going on here. Rule 5 draft is on the precipice. Uh, Ronnie Mauricio, Mark Vientos, Jose Budo, and Adam Aller got added to the 40-man roster, so those guys are protected. The big news is the guys that they left off. That is Carlos Cortez, Brian Meteor, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Metoyer. Metoyer and Carlos Rincon, who could all get swept up. They could all get taken. I don't know the realistic possibility of it, but 
they are at least not protected right now. Yeah, I think that was kind of shocking, if I'm being honest with you. I don't, I didn't see any reason why the Mets to have left three guys off of their 40-man roster who all have pretty uh, pretty substantial positives to their name. They're not These guys aren't perfect players or even close to like super good prospects by any means, but there's something that all three of those guys do between Cortez, Matoya, and Rincon that I think a lot of teams would love to have on their 40-man roster. Maybe not Rincon just because I can't see a team leaving him on their roster all year next year, but Akil Badu did, and it kind of worked out. And also just because the Mets have tons of 40-man roster space. And even if we don't have the space, which we do, by the way, some of the guys that are sitting on this 40-man roster have no business. I mean, Mark Payton? Mark Payton we're giving a spot to over Carlos Cortez? There's no way where Mark Payton ever pays off more than Carlos Cortez for this Mets team. I can't see it. Carlos Cortez has been better than league average every single minor league stop he's ever been in. Brian Matoya would have one of the highest RPMs of any curveball Major League Baseball, and the Mets just showcased him in the Arizona Fall League along with Carlos Cortez. Carlos Rincon, they just made a trade for this year, and while he has a massive strikeout rate, he rips the shit out of the ball. I just don't see why the Mets weren't, going to leave these guys on unless they were going to be aggressive and add some other players who teams were scared to cut or non-tender like during the 40-man roster crunch a team like the Rays comes to mind who always has a 40-man roster crunch the Marlins just got a very exciting reliever in Lewis Head for literally nothing like I I can't comprehend not leaving those guys with us and possibly just figuring out another move like you could cut these guys at a later date that's not a big deal but a team that doesn't really have a ton of upper minors depth I can't comprehend not having Carlos Cortez and, and Carlos Rincon with Syracuse next year. Yeah, I mean, like, you just you go through this list of guys on the 40-man, and, I mean, we're giving a spot to Jake Reed, Steven Nagosik. Uh, I, I mean, like, it's just, it feels like, especially because there is room, why were they not added? Especially, I mean, like, do you think that there's a realistic chance that Matoyer or uh, Carlos Cortez could get picked up on the Rule 5, you think? I think two of these guys will get picked up. I don't think all three. Someone will get left off, but every single guy has something. Matoya just has a good enough curveball that someone will probably tell themselves it's worth it just to bring him into Major League Spring Training, let him pitch in April and May. And if, it, if you catch lightning in a bottle, you catch lightning in a bottle. You think about a guy like Garrett Whitlock. I mean, we saw the Blue Jays take Elvis Luciano uh, as a Rule 5 guy and play him in his 19-year-old season, just let him get shelled at the Major League level all year. And they put him right in, I think, like a high A or double A last year. And they're like, we have no interest in bringing him back up for a few years. Yeah, I mean, Badu. Akil Badu is a guy who was striking out like 26% in double A or high A. I don't even remember what it was. And he just got hot. And somebody just kind of got to believe in yourself. And it really, really worked out for Akil Badu. Like, Carlos Rincon could do that. Like, he's a good enough athlete, and he has enough power where a team will tell themselves it's worth it to have this guy on your roster, especially a team like the Pirates or the Tigers or the Rangers. The Rangers should pick up all three of these guys. They have, like, six guys in their 40-man roster. Yeah, they played, uh, what was it, Yanni Hernandez, who was, like, 5'4", played third. I mean, (laughs) Carlos Cortez can do what Yanni Hernandez was doing. I'm confident. Carlos Cortez is 20% better than league average in double-A. Like, I don't know what more you have to do to prove you could probably hit in the major leagues for that to happen. And Fangraphs already wrote a feature about him, so I'm sure someone's going to pick him up. Sweet. Love that. Love to hear that we're just letting guys go, basically, when we have space. We have plenty of room for them. <sighs> just just frustrating that, like, we talk about how we don't necessarily have the greatest minor league depth, and some of the guys that are our depth pieces we're just possibly letting get poached this year. Like, we just, we just acquired Carlos Rincon. Like, why isn't he at least just sticking around? Like, put him on the 40-man roster. He was in double-A, and he was better than league average in double-A. Like, he's very, he's pretty similar to Khalil Lee. Like, why not just, like, let them both do it? If this is going to be some, a player you plan to develop, like a player, 
a style of player you plan to develop. There's no real issue with having two of them. Yeah, and I mean, like, now doing this, leaving these open spots on the 40-man, I mean, that tells us the Mets are going to be aggressive, I guess. That's what Steve was telling or talking about with Billy in the press conference. Like, he's got the money. He's going to use it, get the right players in. But there also hasn't been much. I mean, the guy we're connected to right now is Steven Matz. That's it. Oh, we should have ways to record to see if he's going to get signed. I don't think he's coming to the Mets. I really don't. I don't think so either. I'd be so shocked. There's but, eight other teams interested. Someone's going to pay too much money. Like, are we going to be aggressive now in the Rule 5 draft? The Rule 5 draft, while it was very fruitful last season, has not really been super fruitful in years past. You can get good little pieces by all means, but you never... It's two hard major, to really Two hit. major pieces went got moved last year. Two guys who were arguably building blocks, I'd say. Who? Badu and Whitlock. Oh, 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 yeah, but at the time they weren't considered building blocks. No, pieces. of course not. Well, neither is Carlos Cortez right now, but Carlos Cortez could get... 400 at bats next year for the Pirates of second base and hit, like, 260. Be rude at Odor. I mean, are you just saying that because they look similar? Yeah. <laughs> 100%. They're both small and have massive thighs. And big beards. Big beards. But, yeah, I mean, like, I'd like for us to get some somebody, a big-name guy, before the, the CBA expires. And I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I really don't. I mean, no, probably not. I don't know. I just really don't. I mean, I'm happy at least they kept... Jose Budo and Aller, because these are two guys who are probably going to pitch for the Mets next year. Two guys who we shout out a lot on this show, especially over the summer. I just can't really see the vision, if, especially not with making enough early moves. Like I understand wanting to have the flexibility, but it's not like this 40-man roster is crunched right now with talent. Like We're not losing guys for the sake of losing them. Like The Mets just basically said that they don't think these three guys are worth developing, and I think that is a real, real miscalculation. The 40-man roster for the Mets has a lot of AAA guys, a lot of guys who are just born to play triple a baseball and i guess then we just have to transition this and how we're going to close the show with last week in billy epler's press conference steve cohen said that money's not an object you can spend anything you want so they just do it i guess just if you're going to let all these guys go off the 40-man roster you better sign like 11 different new major league players yeah so i was watching mlb network the other day i think we, did we talk about this on the last episode no i don't think we did i think we talked about it at a bar one night uh, Joel Sherman, uh, whoever was hosting, and Buck Showalter on. And boy, let me just say this, I couldn't be more sure that Buck Showalter would be a mistake to be the manager if that ever does happen. So please don't let that happen. But Joel Sherman was talking about the Mets offseason. He goes, while they're not a team that's really going to win right now, and I, th- I think we both agree the way that this roster is, it's going to be pretty hard to be a World Series contender with the team that we have. But the Mets have six picks in the top 100 next year, and seemingly those six guys are all going to be in your top 25 prospects in your organization, or they at least all should if you're drafting correctly, which the Mets have shown they've been able to do that recently. Mets have drafted well. So you got six picks in the top 100. You got a couple guys that you could bring back in Stroman and Baez who would definitely help out this team a ton. They would be huge guys to bring back, make the team better. But you don't need to go after guys who have qualifying offers attached to them. There's one guy I would do it for. That's Carlos Correa, and it's because he's one of the best players in the league. But otherwise, we shouldn't be going after guys with QOs attached to them because you're forfeiting those picks. You can get a lot of really good players right now without QOs attached to them. Gosman, right? He doesn't have a QO attached to him. No, yeah, he played, played in the QO last year. Chris Bryant doesn't have a qualifying offer attached to him. Um, there's a couple more guys I'm forgetting right now. I should have wrote them down. Bad job by me. But there are guys available that you can get without losing picks. And still get those picks. And then at the deadline, see what you need. See what's available. See if you need to retool, revamp this roster. That's when you can make some moves. There's no reason for the Mets to really hemorrhage their future right now to try to win when they are steps away still. And, and I think people don't want to hear that. And that's, I, I don't want to have this take either. But I can't believe I'm agreeing with Joel Sherman. I think that's the way to go. And even Joe DeMeo was talking about it on Twitter today too. And I was like, I, 
I weirdly agree with you as well. Like, there's just, there is no reason to give up these picks when we have six of them, and then we can make moves at the deadline to go get players. I don't disagree with that, but getting players at the deadline is a pretty inexact science, and you will always be paying more at the trade deadline than you will in an offseason, especially when you compare free agents to players that are on active rosters. That's always going to be a tough sell, especially when your back is up against that deadline and the other team knows they have the leverage and you have your, get your feet held to the fire. I think about all those Cubs trades this year and how they kind of cleaned up on all three of their uh, players who are all objectively okay rather than all objectively being superstars like we probably all once thought they were and people on Twitter swear they are. I do see your vision, and it, this would be a much easier conversation if the Mets were able to lose a few more games and they would have been able to keep their best picks and been able to give up second-round picks instead. But just when a player like Carlos Correa is a free agent, you don't really see someone of that level of talent really available that often. Like, I probably wouldn't give up the pick for, like, Trevor Story if he was signing less than a four-year deal. But a guy like Carlos Correa, I don't care at all about that pick still, no matter what I give him that money. Yeah, and that's that's the one guy really on the free agent market right now that I don't care about the qualifying offer at all. If Carlos Correa wants to come to the New York Mets and we want to pay him, you get him. It doesn't matter. He will be worth Heaps and bounds, whatever that pick could possibly be. I believe that. Leaps and bounds. Leaps and bounds. All right. Yeah, that's true. I don't know the sayings. I, I screw those <laughs> up all the time. But the rest of the guys, I just I, I can't I can't do it if I'm the Mets. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I'm with that take, especially because this Mets farm system is so obscure and so bizarre and just so it lacks so much depth, even though we have so much talent at the top. Like, there's not many farm systems in baseball who could boast, like, basically five bona fide Major League Baseball players like the Mets can. Three of them who I'd say have like incredibly high ceilings between Alvarez, Mauricio, and Bailey, while I would say Vientos and Khalil Lee are guaranteed Major League bats at some point. You notice I did not mention one pitcher, but there's just no one else really behind that. Like We talk about Budo and Aller. Like they could make the Major Leagues and be okay, especially Budo. The guy really knows how to pitch, but there's literally no guarantee at all with those guys. So it would really help the Mets to get some basically um, some college pitchers and some college bats in this next draft who could fill in the cracks a little bit better. But I just always think that if you see a bona fide free agent talent and you don't have to give up, there's like no, there's like very little acquisition cost. It's just so worth it. Like I, I understand I wouldn't sign four, but basically just Correa, maybe a long commitment to Story. Who else has a qualifying offer? Uh, Seager will have a qualifying offer too. I give it to Corey Seager too. I Nick Castellanos. Stay away. No, Stay absolutely away. not. Well, I mean, we've been we've been friendly on that team this entire time. Can't give it give it up for him. Uh, Rizal Iglesias. I mean, he's probably going to go back to the Angels, but you can't give a qualifying offer for him. Robbie Ray can't do it for him. Corey Seager, no. Simeon, that's a tough one. That's a really really tough one. I didn't know. I didn't know he had one. Yeah. I probably wouldn't then. That one's really tough. Story, uh, Chris Taylor, and Verlander's gone. So I, I feel like Mets fans. Verlander got a qualifying offer. That can't be real. Yeah, he got one. How could that be? What do you mean? How could Justin Verlander be have a qualifying offer? Well, he did. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> he received one. But there's players that I'm sure the Mets are interested in there. The only one I feel great about is Carlos Correa, and then the only other one I'd really consider is Marcus Simeon, and you, you really got to make me think about that one a little bit. But the rest of the guys, you can't give up You can't give up the picks for Nick Castellanos, for a corner no. outfielder who can't play defense. No, no way. No way whatsoever. I don't want this Castellanos anywhere near this team. So I think the Mets have a really interesting offseason coming up. Um, there's a lot of moves that can be made. This team should get better. There's no reason that they shouldn't. There's no signs that are saying they won't. It just really depends what Billy Epler is going to do. Prove us. Prove to us, Billy. Prove to us. Give us that trust. I want to trust you. Show us that you can do it because it's scary. <laughs> it is very scary. But I think 
I mean, I'm pretty good here. I think that's it. Huh? Yeah, I think that's it. I, we, we talked about we wanted to be 30, 40 minutes. I think we got it to about 50. So, you know, yeah. good it's start. A, little, a little shorter than we normally do. But I think it was a good episode. Episode number 62 of the Mets Up Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, just search up, search up Mets Up Podcast. You'll be able to find us. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well as TikTok at Mets Up. James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Me on Twitter at Giraffe Nick Mark. Drop us a rating review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen. We'll see you guys on the next episode of the Messed Up Podcast, episode number 63. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.